Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, tuning in from all around the world. This is your host, Steve Zekas, the Sinatra Suave, host of my one and only Dominate the Deal podcast. Today, I have a super badass guest. Her name is Stella. She's a great entrepreneur. She grew up in Romania, a third world country where you didn't have a lot. Um, she was really inspired to grow and to see the opportunity in herself and build a great vision for herself in entrepreneurship. Her core values are building vision, seeing opportunity in every situation in your life. She's very ambitious. She's very open-minded and has a great perspective of not only how to overcome challenges in your personal life, but also as an entrepreneur and as a business person. And I'm super happy to have her on. So Stella, thank you for hopping on. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So let's get into it, right? But before we do, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, you know, like Romania as a whole and like just your essence, like the background of who you are. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks, Steve. So first of all, just a quick small correction. I'm from Moldova. Most people don't know where Moldova is, so Romania suffices just fine. Um, oh, boy. Moldova is a, a smaller country. It used to be part of Romania, but it became independent after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so I grew up in Moldova. Um, I spent half my life in Moldova and the other half, of course, in the U.S. So I kind of feel like I got the best of both worlds on that end. Um, I do think that it's important to be able to see different types of cultures um, because it develops you in different ways you wouldn't imagine. Um, but growing up, you know, I was raised by a single mom. <clears throat> My father struggled with addictions and um, alcoholism. So, you know, I got to see uh, parts of life that I wouldn't want to have, you know. So there was definitely an example of what to be and what not to be growing up. And I think that's really shaped up some of the decisions that I've made in my life. Uh, but I came to the U.S. in 2006 with my mom and my sister. Um, and at the time, it's very funny to think about it in retrospect because it was such a huge risk that we took. Um, but my mom married my stepdad, who happens to be American, and he basically brought us here. But at the time that we came here, they had only met in person for a week. So we didn't know who he was, if he was going to sell us off to someone or what, you know, so it was a huge risk that we took coming here. You That's know, crazy. I would say, right. We had, we had no money, no connections, barely any ability to speak the language. My mom spoke some English. I didn't speak any English. My sister spoke a little bit. So, you know, we were here at LAX, the LAX airport, and we were sitting there and waiting for my stepdad to show up, not knowing if he would ever show up and what was happening. So I just remember that feeling of sitting and looking around, like we're in this foreign nation and what do we do now? Like, what's going to happen? This could be bad. This could be good. We didn't know. But in my mom's eyes, knowing what we had gone through in Moldova and Eastern Europe, it was the better route to take, you know, um, it was better to take the risk than to stay where we were. So that's kind of my story of how we ended up here. And just like being at that airport, being at LAX, there was almost this sense of opportunity, but there's a feeling of, is this going to work out? Like there's almost like an uncertainty right there, you know, just like, have you ever like talked about that, 
you know, with your mom, just like where you are now and like how much you've grown as a person. Have you ever just like said like, hey, how much of a struggle has it been for you? You know what I mean? Yeah, we definitely talked about that quite a few times. And, you know, I, I wrote down um, that one of the inspirations in my life is my mom. Uh, believe it or not, my mom ended up becoming a psychiatrist um, and she was recruited by the U.S. Navy. So she's a psychiatrist in the Navy. <laughs> so she's gone and she has like a beach, a beach house in Oceanside, you know. So she's gone from almost an inability to speak the language at all to putting herself through medical school in her mid 40s with, you know, like her translator and like translating every other word in her Kaplan books. And she ended up just establishing herself as a psychiatrist, you know, and putting herself through medical school in her mid 40s when most people in their 20s can't even get through medical school, never mind in their own language, right? So she's definitely one of those people that's just a tough cookie, you know? Um, she's always had one remedy for any problem. She would always just say, if I had any kind of emotional issue, she'd just say, just go to work. <laughs> like, that was her response. You just need to go to work. Just go work, you know? So ever since I was a kid, I, my first job was when I was 12 years old or 13 years old, I want to say, and it was tutoring. And then I ended up working, you know, as a hostess at restaurants and waitress and whatever. Um, when I was really, really young, I think like one of my first jobs was at CC's Pizza. I think it's a East Coast branch. I'm not sure there's any on the West Coast. Yeah, CC's little tiny pizzas. Right. I was, I think I was 14 or 15 years old when I started working there as a cashier. And now that I think back, I'm like, I think that was illegal. <laughs> I don't think I should have gotten a job there. But my mom was one of those people that's like, okay, how many jobs do you have? You know, like she's always been that person. So I think that kind of puts things in perspective of what type of person she is. Um, we never really talk about, you know, the struggle and, you know, how we got here and whatever, because in retrospect, it almost feels like it wasn't like it was a struggle, but we don't talk about it on that level because we feel like coming here, regardless of how it was and what the obstacles were and what a risk it might've been, it was so much better than where we came from that it's, it's like a blessing. It's almost like, whiny to even say anything about it you know it's just this is where we are at you know this is the risk we took this is what we did and this is what we made of ourselves um and i think that's the way that my mom thinks of things she's not one of those emotional talkers uh, which is funny because she's a psychiatrist but she's not emotional about a lot of things she just kind of has a perspective of getting through it and getting it done you know that's crazy. I could totally see your mom being like one of those psychiatrists where she's like sitting down and, you know, somebody's like laying on the couch and then they're just like venting all her feelings and she's just like, oh my God, just go to work. Like it's literally <laughs> going to take care of itself. <laughs> on some level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned something um, really interesting, you know, growing up in Moldova, I mean, obviously being independent and whatnot, there's almost this, I feel like it's like an immigrant mentality where just you, you essentially have nothing and then you're able to like build yourself up. Like, do you think like Americans, do you think like people, like especially kids these days, just don't really appreciate the struggle of like working hard, of like valuing just hard work in general? 
I, I think that there's all kinds of people out there. Um, you know, in the business that I work in, I work in a performance-based business, it's commission-based. So I've definitely seen people who are very afraid of doing anything that's commission-based. And I think that primarily that stems from a lack of confidence in yourself, not so much the commission-based aspect of the job itself. It's just the, the inability to tell yourself, I'm confident enough that I can figure it out. And I always bring up the example of, us coming to this country, you know, without any kind of connections or money or the ability to speak the language. And that was a risk in my book. That's risky as hell, as risky as you can probably put things, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's tons of other stories out there, but to me, that's a risk. Right? Um, so taking on a performance-based commission-based job is not a risk in my book. That's just you figuring it out and seeing what works for you. But a lot of people think of that as a huge risk, you know, I hear so many people when I do interviews and I bring people on board, you know, to join the team. Um, a lot of the things that I hear is like, I can't take that risk right now. And to me, that seems so interesting to think about the aspect of making money. I can't take the risk of performing is what you're saying, right? On some degree, to some degree, you're saying, I can't take the risk of believing in my ability to figure it out. And so to me, the idea of the performance-based position, the commission-based position, that's not risky. What's risky in your mind is believing in yourself. That's what's risky. And that, I think, is just a, an, a, an issue that you have to deal with in your own way. But with that said, you know, one thing that I don't usually say is, you know, like a lot of, I, I hear a lot of people that maybe are older or even younger who are saying, the problem with this generation or the problem with the kids these days or whatever, I don't think there's a problem with the overall generation or the overall, like I've met all kinds of people, right? I, I don't think there's a problem with a whole generation or a whole group of people or American kids or, or Californian kids or anything like that. I just think there's certain types of people. And I've seen people who were born here who are such hustlers, who are such go-getters and, you know, just make it happen. And they were born you know, in a middle-class or upper-class family. They're just hungry. That's their personality type. They were taught, values that were taught how to go after what they want um, and whether they came from a tough background or not they just make it happen so I think at the end of the day it's not that if you're an immigrant you you have some kind of like an upper hand on the rest or like you understand things better than others it's not that it's just your own ability to stay hungry whether you come from a tough background or not that's a really great answer by the way um, oh. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of insight there wanted to get your opinion on that because you talk about your brand, right? And bringing people on. You do a lot of performance-based work and that's, that's essentially your net worth, right? Do you think people, in your opinion, who focus on getting a salary, almost having a safety net, do you think that puts in their mind limiting beliefs that I can't be more than this? It makes them almost stay comfortable. Right. I think that it's more, I can't allow myself to be less than this. And that's the fear. It's not so much, they don't think about, I'm not worth more than this. They just won't allow them to think that they won't allow themselves to think that they can do less than that. That's where they put their limitation, you know? And I think that very often it's kind of the opposite, the way that people would perceive um, things to be is a little bit different than how they really are. Like I hear a lot of entrepreneurs talk about, well, if you just keep having your salary job, right, 
then um, you're limiting your own potential. Like you, you believe that you're not worth more than that because you keep making 40 grand a year for 40 years or whatever that might be. Right. Maybe you get a 5% raise every now and then. Um, but I think it's a little bit different in terms of where that stems from psychologically. I think that people have a self worth idea and they won't go, go below that. You see what I'm saying? I think it's not, it's not necessarily that they don't think they're worth more. It's just that they don't think that they're worth less than 40, 40,000. They don't think they're worth less than a certain amount. So they won't jump into that risky kind of profession, right? Like I'm not, I'm worth more than working my ass off for no money for a given amount of time. That's the limiting belief. Not so much, you know, I'm not worth enough to make a certain amount of money. Um, and I think that that could be problematic on some level. Um, I, I won't say it's necessarily entitlement. It's more so like just the inability to look beyond the struggle of getting to a certain point, you know, but um, I've definitely done tons of interviews where people come in and they're like, well, what's the benefits package? What's the salary? What's the base? What's this? What's that? You know, those are the first questions that they ask because they think that they're worth a certain amount and they won't allow themselves to get below that. And that's the limiting belief that a lot of people have, right? Um, a lot of people have a, a difficulty of believing I can start with nothing and make something happen. I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm worth more than starting with nothing is the, the thought process. So. That's a lot there. I'm trying to like process all of it, but it almost seems like everyone has a ceiling. Everyone has more or less an expectation. You're saying Stella, of where they want to be and what they visualize themselves at. But at the same time, they're not looking up because they're so focused on the floor. And they're like, I can't be lower than this. Yep. So that's how, that's why a lot of people pass up a lot of opportunities. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's, that's my personal belief. I think that it takes a certain personality type to be humble enough to say, I don't know this, but I will figure it out. You know? I may not make the money right away, but I will eventually, you know, I may not get the reward right away, but I will eventually it's, it strips away some of the ego, you know, it strips away your ego. When you say, I am not going to ask about benefits packages. I'm not going to ask about the base salary. I'm not going to ask how much you're going to pay me. The first thing that I'm going to ask is how can I be an asset to your organization? How can I make myself valuable? And I know that once I make myself valuable, I will get rewarded. And I know that right now, maybe I'm not valuable because maybe I don't know anything about your industry or your business, but I will learn. So it's that humility to recognize that perhaps you can start from zero, from nothing, you know, and the humility to get yourself to that point and understand, like, let me strip everything off and recognize that I may not know anything and just start from scratch. I think that is the, the fear that people have because they build themselves up to a certain degree where, well, I got this education and I need to be at this point and this and that and the other, you know, like whether you have a degree or you have, you know, I've had somebody tell me at some point, well, I have a bachelor's degree and whatever. And, you know, I, I remember I, I told them, well, yeah, so do most people, that's good for you. You know, I don't know what to say to that. Um, but I think that on some level it creates this boundary of, I won't go below that, you know? But when you do that, then you, you limit yourself to how high you can go. Because when you, when you set a, a, a limitation, then you limit, limit yourself on both ends. It's not just you can't have one without the other and vice versa. So. Fair enough. If you were to ask, if you were to counter that, 
I would just say to that person who has the bachelor, ironically enough, because I have a bachelor degree as well. So like I would tell myself, I'd be like, oh, what would you rather have? Would you rather have the billionaire status or would you rather be the guy with the bachelor's? Now, the greedy person could say, hey, why have one where you can have both? But at the end of the day, it's about, you know, net worth. And if you can help a billion people, then, you know, you're giving value that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a nutshell, if you had to summarize your brand and the value you give, not only to your team, but to other people, what is it exactly that you do? Oof. What is it exactly that I do in terms of how do I bring value, right? How do you, yes. Um, I think that, you know, for the most part, the best thing that I can offer is just the ability to um, see what's best for you. Like in a way where, you know, if I'm coaching one of my salespeople or I'm coaching one of my managers or, you know, anything of that nature, I usually try to figure out what's the best route for them. Um, and, and what would fulfill them more and, you know, where do they fit in better? Um, I think that's a strength on some level that, you know, I still try to work on. Um, but that ability to relate and see from their perspective is something that I, I think I pride myself in for the most part. Um, but I, I, of course, am still learning of how to maneuver around that and, you know, how to get better at things like that. Um, but I think that a lot of times when you have somebody that tries to coach you, and I've seen this, you know, when I was coached by any of my higher ups, you know, they would give me like a one glove fits all type of answer. And I I hate that kind of coaching. I think that it's so, um, so lazy. (laughs) You know, if, if I'm sitting down with somebody and they give me an answer that would apply to 90% of the population, that doesn't help me by any means. So I think that my strength comes in, in the ability to hear where that person is at specifically and try to give them an answer that would specifically fit them for the most part. Um, I think that's where my strength comes in. But besides that, you know, I I also believe that we're always developing for the future um, and we're always developing to bring value to people we haven't even met yet. You know, I think very often people kind of get caught up in what am I doing right now specifically? Who am I impacting right now specifically? But very often you have to just impact yourself so you can get better for the future people that you get to meet in the future that you haven't even met. You know, it's possible that at some point, you will have a podcast that everyone in the world knows about, you know, maybe you'll have 5 billion listeners, but you don't know that yet. You won't be ready for that if you don't work on yourself now, you know, and it's the same idea. Like maybe one day I'll have a team of a hundred salespeople and all of them will be looking toward to me for some kind of guidance and some kind of leadership. And it's my responsibility today to get myself to a point where I'm ready for that five years, 10 years from now. Fair enough. I agree with that 100%. It's almost like you're devoting, you're devoting growth and your success to yourself first. You're almost like you're filling your cup first. So that way you can fill somebody else's cup. And when they almost understand that that's how it works, when their cup gets bigger, obviously they just get a bigger cup because it's overflowing. But then they can pass that on as well and you can keep growing with that. Right, right. Mm-hmm. right on right on and just going over leadership you said one of your biggest strengths is being able to empathize with other people 
right? Being an active listener and coaching them in a way that fits their personality and their habits. What do you think, in your opinion, other than active listening, what do you think are three qualities that really define a great leader? So I think there's many qualities that you can develop as a leader. I think leadership is an ever-changing, ever-evolving type of, uh, I shouldn't say industry, but aspect of a personality. Um, And I think that besides just being able to listen and understand what this person needs specifically, another thing that I think is really important is uh, being able to, let me put that on side real quick, Um, being able to, rather than ask somebody, how can I help you, um, tell them how you can help them. I think that the worst thing you can do as a leader is, you know, have somebody sit with you. And the first thing that you ask is, how can we help you? And well, the the person's not doing so well. So if they knew how you could help them, they would have probably helped themselves, right? So I think that one of the laziest things you can do is give a cookie cut answer. And another really lazy thing you can do as a leader is just ask, how can I help you? (laughs) And not figure out how specifically you can help that person. So in leadership, I, I think those two are such prominent aspects of getting coached by so many people who just are too lazy to figure out what is it that you need and how specifically they can help you, you know? Um, so, so those two things I try to avoid in my coaching. I never ask somebody, how can I help you? Unless I've tried every possible thing and nothing works at that point. If there's literally nothing that I've tried that works, I will do my best to figure out if there's anything you can give me as guidance to help you. Right. Um, but those two things I definitely try to, to avoid in, in my coachings. Would you recommend also everybody has different personalities, right? And that's the same for mentors and for leaders as well. If you're trying any and every kind of approach and you're just like, damn it, this ain't working. I need to find somebody else. Do you have, for you personally, do you have like a right-hand man, a right-hand girl with you to say, hey, look, this person's really struggling. You have that critical conversation with them, right? You pull them aside. These are their issues. Do you try to match their personality with the leader's personality? So that way, maybe there's a little more, I don't want to say like emotional intelligence, but there's almost like the other person can come to their own conclusions. Yes. I definitely think there's, um, you know, on my team, I do have a right hand person, which is funny you brought that up. And I definitely match personalities all the time. Um, But my right hand person, her personality is a lot softer than mine. Like, I'm pretty tough, you know, and when I try to coach people, I'm very blunt. It's like the Eastern European in me, no matter what you do, you won't be able to get that out of me. Um, and she's like the softer version of me. <laughs> God damn, so she, you people are hardcore, I gotta say. Super yeah. hardcore. Yeah, yeah, we definitely, if you meet an Eastern European, the first thing you'll probably notice is just how blunt they are and how little of a filter they have. It's it's funny because I've, I've noticed that so often and I just laugh every time. I was like, did, did she just say that? Yeah, she just said that, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's there's definitely a balance there, you know, with, with my right hand person, you know, she and I balance uh, each other out. She's a lot softer. She's a lot more welcoming, you know, and she's, I I wouldn't say she's more understanding. She's just more empathetic. I think on some level, you know, where sometimes like if my, I'm like the bad cop, she's like the good cop sometimes, you know, if, if my response is, 
Well, sometimes you just need to get over and conquer your inner bitch. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know if I can curse on the show. But sometimes that's just what a, what the What a rip. Right? Sometimes you just got to conquer your inner bitch. That's it. And then she will be the person that's like, okay, tell me about all of the things that are preventing you from conquering your inner bitch. You know, like that's kind of where our balance lies. And she will listen to every, you know, issue you're having and every problem you're dealing with. And she will be very, very understanding. And then I'll come in and I'll kind of tear off the bandaid. Like, okay, now that we talked about it, time to conquer your inner bitch, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that that's, that's the balance and that's the personality matching that I usually tend to do. You know, there's levels of going through her and then through me. <laughs> what really, in your opinion, sticking on like the inner bitch part, we'll rip the bandaid off in like a couple seconds, but what do you think, why do you think people fail so much, whether it's in the career that they have or perhaps a business venture that they're just starting up as, you know, a vicious entrepreneur? Why do you think most people fail? And in your opinion, like, how can they get out of their own head almost? Hmm. Um. I think there's so many different answers um, that I could give. I mean, there's so many different reasons somebody could fail at, you know, whatever they're doing, whatever venture they're on. Um, but I, I do think that there sometimes is a mental block um, and there's all kinds of ways to handle, you know, a, a demotivated state of mind. Um, and very often I think that we try to beat ourselves up and just, you know, like slap ourselves around and just say, get over it and move on. But sometimes you have to recognize that it's part of human nature to have those dips. It's part of being alive. If you're, if you're not going to have any mental dips, then you're probably a robot. <laughs> it's like you probably don't have a heartbeat. Something's wrong with you. So we got to recognize the humanness in us, you know, and give ourselves that, you know, that pass on that level. Um, to be able to feel those things and to go through those dips, but also then, you know, kind of internalize them. I always say there's, there's a difference between mental resilience um, and uh, mental resilience and evolution, right? So like being resilient, mentally resilient is just being able to get past your failures and move on, right? But evolving is being able to internalize your failures, grow from them, understand from them, and then move on. There's a difference of like letting stuff roll off your back and then internalizing it, growing from it and getting better, you know? So I think those two, like the ability to adapt based on your past failures is that much more important than just being resilient, you know, because you might be resilient. You might keep on, you know, pushing through and plowing through, but you didn't learn anything from any of your failures because you just keep pushing through like a bulldozer. You're just stubborn about it, you know? Um, so I think there's much more to the evolution aspect as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you know, as a, um, an artist, as anybody you could think of, you know, because we all fail in one way or another, there's much more to the evolution of it and how you get better and how you learn from your failures and how you internalize them, you know, and how you battle through your own demons and the things that happen to you and then come out better. So the oscillation between the failures and the successes is what really matters. But I think that over the long run, if we were to give like a nutshell answer to why do so many people fail, it's because they can't withstand the shit eating for a long period of time. <laughs> because we all go through a time where we have to eat shit on and on and on and on and on and on until finally we have a breakthrough and we succeed. 
And I think the ones who are the most successful are the ones who are the best at shit eating for a long period of time. They, they can just handle the failure after failure after failure after failure. And they can keep going and going and going and learning and learning and learning. I think those are the people that continue on and succeed in their lives, whatever the, the, the idea of success may be in your book, whether it's financial or it's, it's your ability to be an entrepreneur and be happy doing it, regardless of what the result is, you know, whether it's developing a business or whether it's raising a couple of kids that happen to be demons and you can't handle doing it anymore, you know, whatever, sure, whatever sure. your level of success is, <clears throat> the ability to withstand the shit eating and continue to move forward overall I think is the distinguishing factor between those that end up being fulfilled and, and happy and those that roll over and then they just become dissatisfied with the fact that they just you know fell when things got tough there's beauty in your bluntness Stella I gotta I gotta say but you it's almost it sounds like embrace the suck they almost feel like there it's it's super easy it's always a straight path but in your regards in that regards obviously you know times change you know you have your dips you have your good times you have your bad times you think philosophically speaking do you think there's almost like a karmic debt where there's a balance right like even though you're doing super well it's not like you want to focus on the failure but you just have to realize that you have to find a way to keep yourself humble so that way, even if that failure does come, you're able to just mm -hmm. approach it the right way. Yeah, I 100% I believe that on some level, as you mentioned, karmic, uh, you could say seasonal, you know, there's all kinds of different ways you could look at it. But I see failure and success as external factors. But your ability to grow and learn is always internal. So success and failure will always be an external factor that whether or not, however you take it will be entirely up to you and how you internalize those things will be entirely up to you. Um, I, I think that the ability to learn whether you're succeeding or you're failing is the most important by far. Um, and that's the most difficult aspect of it all, because I think that when we are failing, when things are not going our way, the last thing we want to do is learn, <laughs> you know, because it gets so emotional. We're like, fuck your learning, dude. I'm struggling. Like, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, like, I just want to go to sleep and cry myself to sleep or whatever, you know. Um, so I think that that's an aspect that gets missed is the fact that if you're still learning, whether or not you're failing or you're succeeding is less relevant than the the product of a human being that you're getting to be you know um i think it was tom Ballou that I, I heard a few days ago talk about um the ability to not compare yourself to yourself even not even just other people but just yourself uh based on where you're at in life like he talked about i'm not sure if you saw that it was i think it was an instagram video that he posted of him publicly. impact theory i i know tom Ballou. he's got a great yeah. podcast Yes, he's, he's incredible. Um, but this was, this was an impact theory. This was him giving a public, uh, he was at a public speaking event. So he was just okay. you know, talking about the ability to not compare yourself even to yourself, because he was saying that if say Michael Jordan compared himself today to the 20 years where he was the top, the best of the best, he would be depressed because he's no longer in that position. You know, if he played right now against you know, LeBron per se, I'm not, I'm sure there's all kinds of debate about this, but if he played sure, against sure. somebody, 
he's older now. He's not in the same position he was in when he was at his peak. So for him to compare himself to himself when he was at his peak, the most successful you could think of at that time would be dumb because that would be depressing because you're no longer there. You're in a different place in your life. But what you can keep consistent is your ability to continue to stay curious and to continue to learn and to develop. That's the most consistent aspect that you can control and you can reliably feel like you're at least getting better, you know, that you're at least doing your best to be a better version of yourself tomorrow, regardless of where you're at or what successes you had or what failures you went through. It's, it's getting that, it's stacking your small wins, getting 1% better, being disciplined enough where even if you don't see the results, you still keep going forward. I would actually challenge that in this regard. I wouldn't, comparison to yourself, I think is good. Mm -hmm. The only reason why I say that is because when you compare yourself to others, that's where you hurt yourself. When I first started doing B2B consulting, business to business, um, a lot of days I wasn't making sales. I was a slow learner, like getting inside my head. This is where like you would just be metaphorically just cracking your whip. Just be like, hey, cock your inner bitch. Let's go. Come on. Stop being soft, right? But for me, I remember I was talking to this super senior level consultant and he told me he said you got to stop comparing yourself to others compare yourself to the version you were yesterday because the only easy day was yesterday so it really i think ties in to perspective getting one percent better but focusing it more so on okay this was where i am today this is what i did well I'm going to double down on that the next day. But if there's something I can fix, that's where, okay, let that be my big rock that I put all my energy towards and get that out of the way. That's just my take on that. But I agree a lot of what you said there. Yeah, definitely. And I think that what you're saying also speaks to the ability to evolve. You know, if you're not constantly evolving and, um, you're not constantly growing or learning or staying curious, then you kind of lose a sense of purpose, you know? So I, I think that what you're saying is a hundred percent true. And I agree with you for sure. Um, I think that on some level speaking to Michael Jordan, comparing himself to like his peak and when he was his best, um, I think there's so many ways to look at that. Um, but you know, sometimes you just change your direction in life. Like today, sure. if I compare myself to the days when, when I was a concert pianist, you know, I have a bachelor's degree in classical piano performance. Today, I'm not doing, you know, recitals and doing that. Like it wouldn't make sense for me to look at, you know, how I was performing the, the Firebird Suite by Stravinsky when I was 23 in Italy. And then today, like, I'm just, I just play whenever I feel like playing, you know, it wouldn't make any sense for me to look at myself in that respect. But what I can say is I have so many more skill sets today than I did then, you know, but I was Absolutely. at some point and not so much right now because I don't practice five hours a day. It's a different time for me. Um, so I think on that level, perhaps that comparison is almost strange to make. It doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but the ability to continue to get better regardless of what field you're in or what you're doing is I think the most important aspect. You're right. That's a lot of value here. I want to keep it going. Um, 
to build off that, right? For you, how did you find your purpose? Did you always have a really strong sense of identity and a strong sense of yourself? Or was that really just something you just had to develop and just kind of like troubleshoot it along the way and then boom, find a good opportunity for you? Yeah, I think that when we talk about having a sense of purpose, it's, it's very difficult to narrow it down to one thing or another. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people be- beat themselves up and they kind of like run in circles trying to find their sense of purpose, you know? Um, and they think that perhaps a job will develop a sense of purpose for them. Perhaps a certain amount of money will develop a sense of purpose for them, you know? Um, or even like, you know, having a family, raising a family will develop a sense of purpose for them. And I think that that's a very narrow way of looking at it. There's no one job, one career, you know, one place, you know, a certain amount of money that will automatically be like, that's it. That's my purpose. You know, Um, I think that it's an ever changing internal battle that people have. As far as having a sense of identity, I think it's very important to develop that early on. Um, And I can tell you that growing up uh, in Eastern Europe, you know, having an abusive father, being raised by a single mom, you know, uh, all the things that I had gone through when I was a kid, I think really helped me develop a sense of identity. It's kind of funny to to say it in that respect. But um, when I was seven years old, I started going to court to get rid of my father's paternal rights. So we would go to court for five years of my life between seven and 12. And I would speak against him screaming at the judge telling him that my father is not somebody I want to have in my life. And he was right there. Right. So it's doing that as a kid against your father who is at the end of the day, your father, no matter what he did, he's still your father, but screaming and kicking as a kid to say, no, this, this person does not have a place in my life is something that shapes your character very much, you know? And I think very often I kind of overlook that when I think about, man, I'm rough sometimes, you know, like, ah, I need to like chill a little bit. I'm a little bit too harsh sometimes maybe. But when I look back, that puts things in perspective. I developed a sense of an identity of this vocal, loud kid, you know, that was like super, I wouldn't say aggressive in terms of just being physically aggressive, but aggressive in terms of getting what I wanted to get because I, th- I felt like there was a purpose for it, you know. I developed that when I was a kid and and on some level I'm grateful for that because I think it's gotten me to a certain level of being able to push through and just push through no matter what, you know? Um, So on that level, developing a sense of identity is very, very important, but your sense of identity is not necessarily the same as your sense of purpose. So now that you have this identity, what are you going to do with it? Right. Now that, you know, I understand that I can plow through, that I can be aggressive, that I can keep going, um, you know, now that I understand that I have this kind of fire under my ass, you know, um, what am I going to do with that? And that's where things get tricky. Um, and that's where I think we can all get lost a little bit. And there's no shame in getting lost and not knowing where am I going? What sense of direction do I want to take? Uh, one thing I've noticed in myself personally is that I've always been really, really competitive. Like I've always wanted to be the best at something, you know, I always wanted to be, at least if I'm not the best period, at least I'm in the top three or top five, like that's always good. You know, (laughs) to me, I was always like, okay, I'm like in the top 5%, in the top 3%. Cool. I'm chilling. Um, So I do think that that's always been something that has given me a sense of direction, just wanting to be in the top, if not the best, at least in the top. Um, but once I get good at something, the problem that I struggle with is that I get bored, 
you know, so now that I'm in the top, a certain level, you know, top 10% top doing what I do, I'm bored. What else? What else can I do to push myself forward? Because I'm going through the motions at this point. That's been my biggest struggle is once I get to a certain level, I go through the motions because I've already figured it out. I've already done it. I've already pushed myself. So now I get it and I got to move on. Right. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing that some people might struggle with is when they get good, they go through the motions and being able to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Once again, when you get to the level where you're going through the motions is what might push you to have more of a sense of purpose and something to wake up for every morning. Fair enough. Would you say, I'm speechless because you're throwing so much at me right here. That's it's awesome. It's awesome. But I guess my question is, right. Some people almost feel shallow when they've accomplished something for you personally, when you're coaching people, right. How do you get them? How do you teach your people to go towards their goals? have this growth mentality and try to see three to five moves ahead plan for that, but also bring it back a little bit to where you can say, Hey, you know, celebrate this small win. You've come a long way. How do you strike that balance as a consultant, as a coach? Hmm. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with momentum I think that once you get to a certain point, especially in sales, you know, because I coach salespeople pr primarily in sales, when you gain momentum, you got to keep going. You know, you can't just like, okay, I got to like 5,000 of production in like three days. Okay, let me just take a chill pill because I'm, I'm so great. <laughs> you know, that's sure. the worst time to stop and to celebrate how good you are. That's the best time to keep going and ride the momentum because it gets so easy for some reason. When you get a sale, two sales, three sales, four sales, all of a sudden everybody wants to buy from you. It's kind of weird. Like the universe twists it around for you and it's like, Oh, well, here you go. Here's a, here's a bunch of people who just want to buy. Sure. You're just so indifferent. You're just like, Hey, yeah, like I, I got my sales. It's like, cool. Like I know this works, but it's like really not a big deal. Like if you, if you want to buy from me, cool. Like if not, I'm literally just going to sign South pizza, you know, two for one strombolies right up the street. It's not a big deal. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. You don't come off desperate, right? So, so it, it changes your perspective, your attitude, you know, towards your clients and your clients can see that. And so when you're in that position, that's the best time to keep going. Um, so that's when it comes to sales. But I, I think there's so many aspects to the ability to celebrate a victory and then keep going and, you know, being able to continue to have that momentum and continue to perform and continue to have that sense of purpose. Um, I think there's so many aspects to that, that it's very difficult to narrow it down and say, this is how you do it, or this is how you don't do it. Um, I can tell you that for me, the reason that I feel that having been uh, raised in Eastern Europe and having gone to a Russian music school, um, and I started competing as a pianist when I was seven, eight years old. Um, so I, I was always competing throughout my entire childhood and all the way up until we came to the U.S. And then in the U.S. I was competing again. So I've always been in piano competitions my entire life. And I've always worked the hardest and got the best results when I had a piano competition coming up. And so my piano teacher, when I was a kid, noticed that. So she put me in every competition possible. I had competitions every other month. It was like constant competition after competition after competition. Um, and I realized that the reason that I did my best was because I had a performance coming up. 
And I think that when you talk about somebody like a Michael Jordan, I don't know if you watched the documentary, The Last Dance, but it was phenomenal. It was such a good documentary. And I was watching that and thinking, how did this guy continue to push himself to be better and better and better with each game? How was he so determined? How is he so much better than the rest of the world, right? He's like the GOAT, basically. How did he get himself to that level? And I could relate to that because I remembered myself when I had competitions as a kid. Like, I knew I had a performance coming up, so I pushed myself the hardest that I could push myself because I cared so much about winning. And I think that that is an aspect that people overlook. If you don't have a physical deadline, a physical competition, a physical performance, then you just kind of go about your day and you do whatever you do. But if you put yourself in a position, I always tell my, my salespeople, if you put yourself in a position where you knew that 30 days from now, you'd have to negotiate a deal that was worth a million dollars, you'd have to negotiate that deal. How much harder would you practice right now? If you knew that that much money was on the line a month from now, how much harder would you push yourself, right? So that, I think, is what's missing the most from people's lives. They don't give themselves a performance to strive for. They don't give themselves some kind of, like, judgment day for their ability to perform. You know, that deadline that pushes them harder and gives them a sense of direction and a sense of purpose when you're just going about your day as if, you know, it's just another day. And that's when you start going through the motions. Um, so I think for me, the best thing that I can always do is give myself a deadline for something else that I'm going to do. Like once I get good at sales, I'm just like, that's it. Like <laughs> I'm good at it. I don't want to keep doing it because it's going to drive me nuts. So no matter how many performances I gave myself to be a better salesperson, it's not going to push me that much, you know? So I had to put myself in a position where I had to figure out leadership. So now I was coaching people, not just doing sales. So that was my next performance was I want to be a leader. That was my next performance. So I had to push myself to get better at that performance, you know? And then next was, okay, well, I want to get into real estate because now I'm in in the insurance business. I want to get into the real estate business so I can have multiple streams of income. So I want to give myself a performance to do that, right? And then I was like, okay, I want to do something other than just that. I want to get into the whole podcasting world. And that's when I gave myself another performance. So it doesn't have to be specific to just your industry. You can give yourself another sense of direction by giving yourself a performance to get better for something else, right? And I think that's what creates the sense of being alive and working towards something and accomplishing something and giving you a sense of direction and purpose. It's almost like treating every venture as as it's a game. Almost yes. treated yeah. as a game. You you make you make it fun. Change right. your change the way you see things, and you'll change your life in that regard. Like you thought of everything as a competition, so every challenge didn't feel like a challenge. It was just it was something fun. It was something to explore. Like I wanted to ask you this because I was thinking about it for the past couple minutes. Um, do you think the schooling system now? you know, high school, college, do you think they almost, like, take the fun out of life? Not in terms of, like, it being, I'm not saying, look, you're, you're not trying to be super kumbaya, I get it, but at the same time, you almost take away the hobbies, the things that people are really passionate about, and they almost don't allow them to explore that. Like there's almost like no mentorship. It's just like somebody just cookie cutting everything. Do you think there can be changes to that? 
to allow people to grow more. Yeah, I, I think there could be a lot of restructuring in the educational system for sure. I've thought about it for a long time. I remember when I was in college, um, I was listening to an interview and it was, I forget what the guy's name was, but he was basically in charge of the educational system in Finland. And one of the questions was, how, what, what's your percentage of high school dropouts? And he was perplexed. He was like, what do you mean dropouts? He's like, well, how many kids drop out of school? And he said, what, why would they drop out of school? <laughs> and so the interviewer was like, what do you mean? Do you, you don't have kids dropping out of school? He's like, no, we have zero. We don't have, why do you have kids dropping out of school? And so it became this conversation of what do you mean by kids dropping out of school? Why would that even happen? And so when they started talking about it, they realized that in Finland and a lot of other Scandinavian countries, their education system revolves around the kid, not around the system. And that's the biggest difference is what you're talking about. You know, having the educational system become a little bit more flexible, make it a little bit more fun, make it a little bit more uh, centered around the child and what they may need. Um, I think that there's so much restructuring that would need to happen because the educational system is what I was talking about when it comes to leadership. The cookie cutter answer, the one glove fits all, you know, and we're all supposed to fit into that system. And I think that there's so many things that are not talked about in high school that should be, you know, there's always these memes on social media of like, well, I know the Pythagorean theorem, but <laughs> I had no idea how to file my taxes or something, you know, yeah, like, fair, fair. Things, right. That you would need to know. And thank God for Google. <laughs> like there's so many things in the last decade of my life that I've just Googled and figured out, you know, but I wish that as a kid, I was taught some of these basic things that you would need to know as an adult, right? To be prepared for, you know, being a professional, uh, having a career and what that would entail and how you can purchase your first home, you know, and, and how does that work and, and how you can finance a car <laughs> and how yeah. you get ripped off when you do that. You know, like you become, you get underwater when you have your first car because you don't know any better. So you get a stupid loan, you know, <laughs> like all kinds of things that you learn through experience that should have been taught to you as a kid. But besides that, revolving the educational system around what the child is best at, of course would also be ideal. Like when I grew up in Eastern Europe, I went to a music school. So the academics were still present, but I was a competing pianist. So when you were competing internationally, you were kind of allowed to skip classes. So I was allowed to just get up in the middle of finals and be like, oh, I have a competition and just go <laughs> rehearse, you know, like that. Yeah, yeah, that literally had, that's, the, that's a story that my mom still tells this day. We were in the middle of finals and literally I got up and the principal sitting there and I'm like, oh, I have a rehearsal. And he's like, off you go. <laughs> you know, and all the kids were like, what the, like, what? What's she doing? She's just leaving like that? But, Let me you know, sign up to I, be a pianist now. Right. <laughs> but you have to perform to be able to do that. You have to be really good at what you're doing, you know, and I was making a name for the school because I was winning competitions internationally. So of course they're like, okay, yeah, 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 let, let her go, right? Um, but I, I also think that that allowed me to develop so much more as a pianist and the fact that I developed as a pianist helped me in so other, so many other avenues, you know, there's so much that you get to learn. Um, and, and I think that a lot of those things are overlooked as a pianist. I learned how to focus for hours at a time. You know, I would practice for four to five hours to be able to focus for that long in today's day and age <laughs> is a huge asset, you know? Yeah. So, 
just that, you know, and the ability to go on stage and perform and have a shit performance, awful performance, and then act like nothing just happened and go on the next week and perform again. That is such a skill set to develop as a kid that most people won't even think about. They're like, oh, let's, let's just have her take piano classes and see how she does. But the ability to perfect that art and what that does to you psychologically as a kid is so relevant that people don't think about. They just think, oh yeah, let's, let's just put them in calculus, you know? And, and that would develop them the best way possible. But not necessarily. I can give you nothing that I took from AP Calc today. I don't remember anything. I don't remember derivatives. I don't remember any of that shit. But well, I you remembered it. You remembered it. Derivatives, I remember the name. I don't remember. <laughs> I, don't, I, I won't go into it much more than that. But, uh, but so much that I learned from piano performance can be applicable in what I do today in business and sales and performance-based careers in, in so many other things. Um, and you wouldn't think that music would be the developing factor, but it was for me. And I think that so much of the educational system would, would be so much better if we could narrow it down specifically for a child to see what develops them the best. I agree a hundred percent. I'm watching this show on Netflix called the Medici. It's about, you know, this Italian family dynasty, right? And it goes into their life. It's a super cool show because it's right around the time of like the Renaissance, right? I'm really fascinated about that period of time. The way these families built a dynasty, like people don't understand, like, oh, how are they so smart? Duh. They didn't go to, they didn't go to the public schools. They had mentors there, you know, teaching them about the arts, about physics, about life, but they learned how to throw a punch, stand up for themselves, have presence. They would go, you know, they would go to council, they would go to church, they would give themselves opportunities to public speak. There was so much that they learned outside of the room. It's almost like our school system, to mention, you know, your cookie cutting with our system, it's very 100% of your satisfaction is going to be learned in the span of 20% of your life. If you live to 85 years old, you're going to be in school system for about 17 years. In that 17 years, you have to find your happiness. And it's like, okay, what else did I learn? If I don't like what I, if I don't like what I do and I change careers, well, I'm essentially at ground zero and I wasted the first 20, 21 years of my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that kids are left with having to decide. And that's why I think very often uh, they go to college and they, they, uh, major in general education, you know, because they're not sure what route they want to take. They're not sure who they are, what they want, you know, what their goals are. And I think that that right there speaks to how limiting um, the educational system is, you know, just like the K through 12 system of going through high school and not knowing why the F you're taking some of these classes. But that said, I will say, you know, there's this like anti-college movement, I think on some level right now, um, and I, I don't think it's necessary. I think that, um, having a college education is, is still extremely important. And I think it's highly developmental. And the reason I say that is because it's organized and it takes very few people to educate themselves outside of the system. Most people won't do it. So when we talk about, you know, you can learn without having to go to college. Well, there's very few people who will learn without having to go to college. There's very few people, unless you put them in a systematic kind of process, they will do it outside of the process, you know? 
Um, so the college offers this guidance of developing yourself, you know, in a better way. I think that my college experience was phenomenal personally, but again, I was a classical pianist. <laughs> you know, I went to a state school. I went to the university of Maryland. So it took a bunch of electives. It took a bunch of classes outside of just like piano performance classes, of course. Um, and I think that that really allowed me to develop so much more. There's so much literature that I read. There's so much that I learned um, that I think developed me uh, in so many different ways. So I do think that college is very useful if you're, if you know what you're doing on some level, and, and if you're able to select classes that are very specific to you. Um, but I think that beyond that, you know, there's of course so much more that we could do to improve our educational system. I had no idea what I was doing in college. Disclaimer. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't, but I, I think I had more of a sense of what I really wanted to learn about. Fair. That's, that's fair. That's awesome that you had that experience. I mean, it was like you had like an angelic experience. I was like Satan, son, basically. Like I was like the meathead. I was like, yeah, like just partying, you know, going on tables, like drinking, drinking like every weekend, partying every weekend. And it really took me a while to, you know, like find my purpose. But I think all in all, a lot of people misunderstood me. And I think having to just try to find myself and be where I am right now, I think it was all worth it in the end. So it didn't make sense right away when I was going through all that, all the struggle, the adversity. But I think like in your situation, you know, your struggles, you know, growing up the way you did and coming out even better, it, it's all worth it in the end. Would you say personally, like you have any regrets? about where you are right now? I don't think so, no. I think regret is one of those like poisonous things to hold, you know, just like holding grudges. I think regrets are very similar. Um, you know, it creates this bitterness. Uh, holding a grudge is bitterness towards someone else. Regret is bitterness towards yourself. That's really, it's the same thing, just a different form of, of doing it. Um, so any form of bitterness, I, I really don't like to hold within. <laughs> Um, so personally, I don't have, it's, it's funny. Cause like when you say, I don't have any regrets, it means you've done everything right. And your, your life is more perfect. And that's not the case. It's not that, you know, everything I've done has been right. And I've made the right decisions or whatever. Um, but I think that regardless of what decisions I made right or wrong, they were with good intent, you know, and they got me to a certain level where I learned something from them. Um, so no, I don't have any regrets whatsoever. Um, even, even the, the days, the weeks or the months were, um, you weren't sure about where you're, you were going and you weren't sure where, what you were doing or you didn't feel very motivated. I don't have regrets about that either because I think those sometimes are necessary to reflect on where you're at. Um, I think sometimes when you're feeling you're in a slump, you know, and, and sometimes like I've talked to myself in a way where like, Stella, you're in the slump. You're not doing much. You're not moving much. You're going through the motions. Like what, what's going on? Um, and, and I talk to myself and I'm like, time to get out of it. You will never get this month back. You'll never get this month of bullshit of your life back. Your life keeps going, you know? Um, and, and if you don't get out of it, you're, you're not going to be happy about the fact that you just spend the last month of your life, just be motivated and going through the motions. Right. Um, but then I, I have to remind myself of sometimes those times are necessary to redirect our sense of direction, right. To redirect what we're doing and where we're going. 
they're necessary for some sort of reflection. Um, they're necessary for that oscillation between the, the good and the bad. They're necessary to continue to be alive. You know, you're not always going to know what you're doing. You're not always going to be on like the exact path you need to be on. You know, you're going to have changes in your life. Um, so, so far, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed with the ability to have figured out some of the things that I figured out, you know, get in a performance-based business, make the most of it, you know, build a team, start other businesses, you know, get into other things and have the time, the freedom to get into other things while still having an income, I think is the best thing I could have done. I didn't think that this would be something I'll be able to do as a 27 year old by any means. If you told me when I was graduating from college, Hey, Stella, when you're 27, you're going to make six figures and get into other businesses. I'd be like, get out of here. Like there's no way, <laughs> you know, but the ability to be in this position, I have to give myself some credit and say, you've done some shit, right? Maybe you did some wrong things and you took the wrong path, or whatever, but you did something right to get to a point where you're at, you know? So that's kind of how I look at it. <laughs> Fair enough. And a lot of a lot of chaos in the one great package right there. That was a great <laughs> answer. What do you think is the biggest thing people misunderstand about you in your eyes? Misunderstand. Um, I think here's one. Here's a good one. Um, I think a lot of people misunderstand my ability to be empathetic because. I can be so harsh, you know, not, not harsh in a bad way where I'm like coming down on someone, but harsh in a way where um, I push someone outside of their comfort zone, I think on some level, like, and, and people are like, I think they assume that I am not sympathizing with someone when I, I very much am, but it's a similar approach that I would have towards myself. I think that the way that you treat yourself is the same way that you treat other people. Um, I'm very self-critical. And at the same time, when I'm very self-critical, I am also pretty understanding of what, what I'm going through. Like what I just said, you know, if I'm going through like a dip, I'm like talking to myself. I'm like, I get it. You're in this dip. You feel like you're going through the motions, you know, like, but at the same time, I am very self-critical to push myself outside of what, where I'm at. And I think some people misunderstand. They think that when I try to push them, I'm very like, I lack sympathy. I lack the ability to understand where they're at and what they're doing, but that's not the case. I more than enough understand what they're doing and what they're going through and why they're in a slum because I've been there myself. Very often when I talk to some of my salespeople or anybody that I coach or talk to and they're in a slump and I'll tell them to help, help them understand that I'm an, I've been in that place. I'll tell them the same thing. Look, I have been there. I know what you're going through. I was just in the same place a few weeks ago, perhaps, right? Like something like that where I want them to understand that I've been there and I get it. It's not like I'm, on a high horse, like Psh, get over it, move on. There is so much relatability there, right? Um, so I think that very often because I push and because I try to get somebody to move past wherever they're at, they mistake that for a lack of sympathy and it's not at all stemming from that. That's awesome, awesome. And for all the success that you have, you're very grounded, right? You are able to definitely take emotions out of business decisions. So my question is, you want to keep the emotions out of business decisions, right? But at the same time, you want to connect with your people on a personal level. Do you personally, do you mix the personal and the professional or do you just try to keep them separate? I want to get your take on that. Um, I think 
when it comes to running a business, I, the number one thing that we hear is you got to take the emotion out of the business. And I think there's so many layers to that. It's not just do not be emotional, period. Like you cannot be emotional if you're running a business. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think there is a spectrum of emotionality where you need to, if you're, if you're super dry, non-emotional, you will not be able to relate to people. And what runs the business is people. Like your people will run your business. So if you're on the spectrum of completely dry, you know, they say dry like toast, like you will not be able to run the business successfully. Right. Great and point, if you're great point. super, super emotional, you will not be reliable as a leader. You won't be reliable to run a business. You won't be reliable to uh, coach other people. You won't be reliable to push things forward because you're constantly wobbling between being depressed and super happy and depressed and super, whatever the, you know, whatever the emotional spectrum is. So I think when we talk about take the emotion out of the business, um, we're talking about when there's a storm, you know, and things are rough, people go crazy. Like I've seen, I've seen some people that have coached teams like sales teams, you know, we're in a position of being a master general agent in our business is basically when you have a sales team, that's the title. And, and they would just lose their shit when things are tough. They're like running around like a chicken with their head cut off. And that's where you want to take the emotion out. Like just <laughs> chill out, you know, settle down. That's when we talk about stop being emotional about the business. But then when we talk about, coaching other people, understanding other people and pushing the business forward, you got to have some kind of emotion, right? You got to have something that's driving you um, to be able to coach other people and relate to them and be able to drive the business forward. Because at the very end, like, I think when we talk about emotion, we think that logic and emotion are two separate things. Like you're either emotional or you're logical, but I think they're completely the same. Your logic comes from your understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And the only way that you understand what's right and what's wrong is through emotion. If you're sad about something, then it must be wrong. <laughs> but if you're happy about something, then it must be right, right? Like your, your ability of having emotion tells you, like your moral compass tells you what's right and what's wrong. And that's how you develop logic. So they're not two separate entities. They're all, they're intertwined. Logic and emotion are intertwined. You just have to be very intelligent and very composed about both. You have to be very tasteful about both and you have to be able to understand where to incorporate one or the other. Being able to read the room, you know, pick up social cues and embrace the fact that being a successful entrepreneur, it's having a blend of both. And the better you can understand that, you'll know right away when to make those rational decisions or those emotional decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think the people that are, very emotional actually on some level and I don't want to generalize, but I think on some level they lack uh, an emotional intelligence because if it's like, it's kind of like, <laughs> this is probably a horrible analogy, but <laughs> if you have a kid that shits themselves all the time, they just haven't learned how to control themselves. You see what I'm saying? It's the same thing. Like you have to yeah. be able to control yourself with your emotions. If you're constantly splattering out your emotions is because you're not emotionally intelligent enough to be able to control it and be tasteful about your you know outbursts of emotion like sometimes i feel like emotion is necessary like not you know going crazy but sometimes you have to be emotional when you're trying to push something forward you have to have some kind of emotion behind it right but you have to be tasteful when you allow that to happen and most times you won't right so Fair. 
Oh yeah, I mean that uh, the shit analogy is hit the nail right on the head right there. I mean, I've seen it where like I've gone to like a Chinese restaurant, and I've seen like a redneck family do diaper changes right on the table. So I kind of like thought of that. I'm just like, oh my god, is this really happening right now? As I'm ready to eat lo mein, I'm like, I stopped like yeah. halfway. I'm like, yeah, I'm not hungry anymore. But you definitely brought up some great points there. Just to hone that in and to really find that balance. I think you have to have a very good understanding of the brand and your message, but more than anything, how to convey that value. Just to get you prepared for your week and even like day by day, like what are like some of the routines that you go through to help get your mind right, you know, get your, you know, get your message ready for the week and then day by day. Um, so I think that having routines is very important if you want to be systematic about something. Um, I always say that if, if you want to um, make sure that your business becomes more systematic and more automated, automated, then you should develop some kind of systems in place. And systems come from routines, right? So you can't have a system if you don't have a routine. Um, I think that over the last few months, ever since this pandemic started, um, it's thrown me off quite a bit, like with my routines and with what I used to to do regularly in the mornings and everything else and like my workouts and everything else. Like the gyms have been closed, you know. So there's so much that has kind of like thrown me off my balance and I'm still trying to find the right balance, you know, in the middle of all of it. Um, the other thing that really messed with my routines is the fact that once this whole thing happened, our sales used to be done face to face. So we would use, we used to meet with our clients and, and show them insurance products, right? You know, what I'm talking about. you're like, oh, <laughs> I know, I know. Yep. So we switched to, to everything over zoom, right? Everything virtual. And everyone just flipped out. Like when this happened, never in the history of our company, we've been around since 1951, have we ever had to do everything virtually? We always meet with people face to face. What are you talking about? Now we have to do it over Zoom? What? So everyone just panicked and freaked out. Now I had a team of 20 some people, right? A sales team of 22 people, I want to say. And when that happened, it was my job to dive into it, even though I've removed myself from the sales uh, aspect of the business, like I don't know, a year and a half ago, because I had not started completely coaching people all the time. I had to jump back into it to figure it out, to teach it to other people. So I was on Zoom doing presentations like 24-7. I think I did like 45 presentations in less than two weeks. It was like on and on and on and on. So, you know, it's for the last few months, it's so hard to tell you what my routine has been, because it has been everything all over the place. From like me trying to get my my salespeople to understand how to do sales on zoom because they've never done it before and just completely immersing myself into the business again and doing sales again and figuring it out and teaching it to other people. That was like a huge aspect of my life, which took away some of the things that I used to do. Like I used to wake up in the morning. I used to make myself a cappuccino. I would read a book or I would listen to a podcast or I would listen to an audio book. Like that was my, right. That, that was Very like my ongoing, ongoing routine. And then I would try to incorporate meditation as well in the mornings and then I would have a workout midday around 1 p.m. You know, sometimes I would work out a bit later in the day, but it was usually midday to later in the day, right? That was my routine. And then once everything happened and everything just like went backwards and everyone was freaking out, I had to just get rid of some of the things that I was doing regularly. I still have my morning coffee. I still try to listen to a podcast, but some of those things like the workouts have been messed up. 
my ability to meditate as much has been messed up because of the timeframes and the thousands of emails that come in with all the new information from the company telling you, you can do this on Zoom and you can do that and you can do virtual signatures and you have to keep up with all the packets of information. So I think that has been such a devastating aspect to my routine in the last few months um, that it's difficult to give you one routine I have today, but ideally a great routine, I think, would be one where you, you know, you do your thing in the morning um, for yourself, you know, where you, you refresh your mind on what's relevant. You listen to something that feeds you, uh, your mind, you know, and develops you and gets you ready for the day, gives you ideas and, and gives you creativity. Um, the one thing I will say that I'm really guilty of is I check my emails pretty much as soon as I wake up. Like that's, you know, every entrepreneur that was any, anybody that is a self-development coach always says, don't do that shit. Don't open your emails right away in the morning. Like Brendan Bouchard says that all the time. I do it anyways. Like to me, it doesn't like bother me. I'm just like, okay, what's going on? And I like, you know, sometimes you don't want to miss an email. That's really important. You have a conference call at 12 and you didn't look at it because no emails for the first, however many hours of your life, you know, in the morning. So you know, that's, that's something that I do that most people say you shouldn't, but I always check my emails in the morning. <laughs> I mean, just like based off that, it's definitely a small win, right? Like for me, I wake up every, every day, like I could just rattle off like six small wins. I do. I make my bed every day, brush my teeth, work <laughs> out. Well, as the cuckoo clock's going off, so don't, don't mind that. But <laughs> like I work out to warrior affirmations. I do meditative breathing as well like just just little things like that like even you just checking your email you know reading right getting yourself in a good practice i think that's people i think if i had to generalize this i want to stay away from that but if i had to say it it's they spend all their time towards others and they feel empty almost Mm -hmm. and lack a sense of self because it's like what have you done for yourself it's not just being an entrepreneur. It's like, what do you love to do? You know what I mean? Like, if you like to read, why are you not reading in the morning? Like having kind of just that inner reflection and seeing where you're at. I think Absolutely. it's pretty powerful. Another good thing that I used to do, I haven't been doing it in a while and probably should get back to it, is uh, cold showers, but like switching from hot to cold. It's the Wim Hof idea i don't know if you know oh i do that too yeah (laughs) it gives you a life you're like oh okay (laughs) like i'm alive (laughs) 100 it almost feels too like when you get out of the shower it's like this almost like shrink wrap effect with your Mm -hmm. skin like my skin just feels like so much better i'm like whoa i feel (laughs) like 10 years younger right now this is awesome Yeah. yeah Because your pores just like shrink super fast, you know, they expand when you're in hot water. And then when you turn it off and you turn on the cold water, like they shrink. So you're like, your skin tightens really, really fast. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm a big Wim Hof guy myself, but real quick, I actually want to play a quick game with you. Change it up a little bit, you know, have some fun. Like we've been having fun this entire time, but let's have a little more, right? Oh. We're going to do a game called word association. Super okay. simple. I'm just going to say a word and you just come up with the first thing that jumps out. Cool? Okay. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Sale. Uh, Oh my gosh, (laughs) it's difficult. (laughs) Sale, doable. (laughs) Michael Jordan. Uh, Goat. Legacy. Important. Greatness. 
necessary? Vision. Uh, life. Struggle. Necessary. Value. Value. Um, also life. It's hard to... Entrepreneurship. What's that? Entrepreneurship. Uh, interesting. Happiness. Necessary. Passion. Life. Love. Uh, life. Fair enough. It's Love. weird. I like, had the same words for most of them because I'm like, I think they all kind of fall into the same categories. Um, but it's interesting. I've never played that game. I'm like, I should probably think about these things. It's tough to, once you hear a word and you've said another word, it kind of lingers in your mind, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you know what? These all fall into the same category. <laughs> but happiness is necessary. And I, I agree with that. So I want to just ask you just real quick, right? As dumb as it may sound to ask somebody, why is happiness so necessary? Like people live unfulfilled lives and they always say, well, obviously I'm happy, but they're really not. So why is it so important to you and your brand and what you do? Can you elaborate on people say, saying that they live unfulfilled lives and yet they say they're happy? Okay. They'll say, I'll give you an example. Somebody who's been a career man, right? Somebody who's um, worked, um, maybe had a lawyer practice, right? They're working for themselves, but they realize that they're a slave to their business because they have, they have to take care of literally every facet of the business. Now, not on that level, let's say hone it down. Let's say you're a career person. You could be an insurance you could be working for the same insurance company, AIG, Aon, New York Life. Pick one, right? They're in the same industry for 20, 25 years. Now, they are in the insurance field because they feel obligated, because maybe everybody else around them, it's almost like pressured them into being an insurance person. It's not what they want. But when you talk to somebody, you just know you can look at them almost dying inside. Like they have that hollow look. Like mm -hmm. having this conversation with you, like I can tell you're very passionate. You have that glow, right? You have that, that energy about you where it's just like, okay, she's driven. She knows what she wants. Like why with that being said, if you, have, if you got a good grasp of it, why do you think it's so important for people to be happy, but for more important for it to be necessary to be happy, especially with your brand? I, I think that to touch on um, anybody that has the hollow look that you just mentioned and just looks like they, they're lifeless and then they say that they're happy. I think they're just lying to themselves. You know, um, I think that there's a misunderstanding of, of, what happiness really means and it's it's so interesting because it seems like it's such a simple thing um and yet so many people kind of misconstrue what it really means and and how do you attain happiness you know and uh, where does it really stem from um so i think it's it's when you talk about happiness there's so many conversations that could be had about it and and 
what it really is and what it really means and how do you really get to that point. Um, I can tell you that in my experience in my life, happiness has never been derived from material things. And I know that sounds so cliche. <laughs> you know, so many people say it's not the money that makes you happy, whatever. Uh, I will tell you money won't make you unhappy. I'll tell you that, <laughs> you know, so from that perspective, you know, I think there's like people think in extremes. They think the more money you make, the less happy you may be because they think that happiness doesn't bring money. Um, you know, they think that you must be slaving away for your money, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Um, and then from another perspective, a lot of people think that happiness is money. So they think that when I get to the six figure income, I'll be happy. Or when I get to a quarter million a year, I'll be happy. Or when I become a millionaire, I'll be happy. And they put off this idea of happiness, right? Um, and, and happiness is very present. It has to be very present. It, it, it can't do anything with where you will be or where you're at or anything like that. It has to be the present that you're currently in, regardless of your situation. When I was a kid, growing up with, you know, and I don't want to talk about my life in like too much detail, but you know, we didn't have access to hot water. You know, we would take showers once a week. We, we didn't have access to uh, clothes. My mom made my clothes, you know, basic things that most people would be aware of. We didn't have access to so many things. You know, we used to walk to, from my grandparents' place to our apartment, you know, twice a week at midnight in a country that is the highest uh, percentage of trafficking people, specifically women, as sex slaves to Turkey. And we would walk in the dark, me and my mom, like a little girl <laughs> with her mom for like 45 minutes, like on foot in utter complete darkness. Like there's no street lights because it's <laughs> that's that's the country that I come from, right? And so like looking back, I'm like, damn, that was so risky. Like we used to do that all the time. And I didn't realize, you know, I didn't know that Moldova was like the number one country for trafficking women. But looking back, I'm like, wow, we used to do that all the time for 13 years of my life. And I never realized, never recognized how dangerous that really was and how difficult that might have been. But at the time, I was so happy. Like I was a happy kid, even with, you know, everything that I'd seen, even with my father who was abusive, even with the beatings and the alcohol and the other crap and the, the court dates, you know, and all the stuff and the lack of hot water and the lack of clothes and whatever. I was happy. Like growing up, I, I can tell you a million stories about me and my sister and my two cousins and all the times that we played and had adventures and whatever. So it was, ne it never had to do with the external factors. It was more so this like world that you create for yourself. You know, we, we used to have these adventures all the time, you know, as kids. And I'm sure that there's a part of it that's like, well, when you're a kid, you're always happy. Not necessarily. There's tons of kids who I'm sure aren't, you know, in, in any position to be very happy. But I've also seen so many instances of, of kids that are beyond happy and yet they live in the shittiest conditions you could possibly think of. Um, so I think that speaks to so much of the internal aspect of the ability to be happy within yourself, to find that fulfillment, to, to find the fulfillment in your present and your existence and the fact that you're here. Um, you know, I, I love uh, Walt Whitman's poem, um, you know, that you are here, that life exists in identity and you're here to contribute a verse. And I think that that's so relevant, you know, when you talk about fulfillment and happiness and, and the ability to feel like you bring value and the ability that to, to know that your existence matters. You know, the fact that you're here matters. Um, so taking it all back, because I know there was like tons of things I said just there. Um, taking it all back, I really think that it's never about, you know, the financial status that you have. 
it's never about even the external factors in your life. Um, I think it's just your ability to be fulfilled within yourself, just knowing that your life matters and it's going somewhere, you know, um, knowing that there is a place that you're going and it's going to be better and it's going to be good. And, and you're, you're going to get there, just that ability. And even like the small things, you know, as a kid, I was happy to like go to a McDonald's once. <laughs> that was like the happiest moment of my like in, in, in America, McDonald's is seen as like, that's the dollar menu, whatever. But in Moldova, it was like the restaurant to go to, you know? So my mom took us to a McDonald's once and we were like, what? And we had like French fries and I had a shake and I was like taking my time with it. Cause the, come on, this is like a one-time thing, you know? So just that moment, it was so fulfilling as a kid and those little things is I think what we lose sight of you know what we don't really uh, focus on because we're not living in the moment we're either so anxious about the future or we're so depressed about the past that we can't live in the moment where the true fulfillment and the true happiness really exists so do you do you think as adults we've lost that sense of being present and really almost having a greater appreciation for what we had. You know, you mentioned, you know, being a kid, right? Even growing up in, you know, what would seem like hell for most people, it's you were just a happy kid, right? You had adventures, you played, you you saw the great in everything, and it's translated into great success and great opportunity here. But as a whole, do you personally think that we've lost that sense of connecting with people on that level of being present i think a hundred percent to give you a short answer a hundred percent i can tell you from my own experience just reflecting on myself and you know the the things that i've lived in the past that the kind of you know environments i've been in and where i'm at today i can for sure tell you that as an adult i've lost that sense of being present a hundred percent and i think we lose the sense of being present in those emails that we check all the time and we have a hundred of them and it, yeah and it gives us anxiety because you open your email box and there's all this shit from work and you're like you know and you're like damn there's so much stuff and i gotta catch up and whatever and the anxiety rises right we also lose the ability to be present because we're disappointed in something from the past and so if you're living in the past you're living in the future you're never going to be present you're never going to be fulfilled because you're living for something that hasn't happened or you're living in some place that already happens, but you can't get out of it, right? And I think that's the biggest issue. So I'll give you a perfect example of, as an adult, where I had this moment of realization. Um, a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, I was moving into my new place. And the place where I live is, is it's got this huge windows, you know, everywhere. And it's, it's the nicest place I've ever owned in my life. Like it's, you know, and it's on the top floor and whatever. And so I'm moving into this place, right? And I'm like stressing because I have to do the move. I had to like, I forget what all the things were I'm dealing with at the time. I was coaching a bunch of people. Like I had a bunch of stuff to catch up on. Like there's all this stuff that's going through my head. It's like this and this and this. Can we just get this move done with like, just, you know, like all this shit. And one of the movers, he like brings in some of my stuff. And it was like at the time where the sun was setting. And so he brings it up and he just looks, this is the first time he was in my place because he was helping, you know, everything was moving. And so he looks up and he's like, wow, your place is beautiful. I wish one day I'll have a place that allows me to see the sunset like this with these huge windows. And I just sat there and almost started crying. I'm like, when did I lose this sense of appreciation? 
I'm over here thinking about all the emails, all the crap. And this guy just looks up and is like, wow, I hope one day I'll be able to have a place to see sunsets like this. And then just like brought me to tears. Like I was sitting there and I was like, damn Stella, where have you gone? Like, where, where have you gotten to this point where you're you just so shallow at that point almost? What? It was almost like, damn, like I was yeah. focusing too much big picture. You almost felt shallow when he said that. Oh, yeah. Like on so many levels, I felt like I was so far from where I was as a kid, you know, where like the smallest things that like that little McDonald's visit was like the most fulfilling moment. And yet, you know, here I am, you know, at the time I was 26 years old, I'm moving into this beautiful place and I have all this stuff and whatever. And I'm not even noticing some of the things that this guy was just like amazed by because why? Because he was in the moment and I was anxious about the future. He was in the present and he was just amazed and he felt like it was such a beautiful sight to see. That's why he commented on it. When I saw it, I was like, wow, he's right. Like what a sunset, you know? It was pink and orange and beautiful. And you were like, wow, when you saw it, when you noticed it, it was like a moment that you had to be present in. But the anxiety about the future was distracting me from the present. And that's what distracts you from being fulfilled. That's what distracts you from being happy in the moment that you're in. I think that example is like the perfect example of being taken away from your presence, from your fulfillment, from your happiness because of all the shit that you're anxious about, stressing about, need to get done or whatever. In your pursuit to make more money, in your pursuit to have a better career, in your pursuit to do whatever, you're missing the things that life is really about. Dropping value bombs all the time. <laughs> Just some uh, closing remarks real quick, Stella. It seems really, I was listening to um, my mentor, Brian Rose. He had a podcast with Brian, with um. Wes Watson and Wes Watson, you know, he's a fitness coach, motivational speaker, entrepreneur, right? And he said, the person who values success, who values the process of becoming successful more than the successful result itself will be unstoppable. And I think how it kind of ties into, you know, the sunset, you know, pink and orange skies. And I think it really being able to move forward, right? and always want to grow, always want to have the best for yourself. But being at the same time, being able to take a step back and saying, while money is a great thing to have, while success is a great thing to have, being able to just take a step back and appreciate what life has to offer and its beauty. I think that's what it's all about and finding our purpose. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had a blast. This was like hands down, if not the best episode, top two in my opinion. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you say all the time. <laughs> you say the, goat. <laughs> the goat. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Steve Zekas, the Sinatra Swap, host of the one and only Dominate the Deal podcast. Signing off with Stella right here. She's a great friend of Dominate the Deal. She's always welcome. And I want to thank everyone tuning in, welcoming her with open arms, open minds. We brought a great energy. We brought a great vibe to it. I think we went back and forth, got really deep on philosophy, success. And I'm super stoked to have her on. Like I said, signing off for right now. You're always welcome to come back on. Forge your own path. Stay committed. Stay strong. And I'll see you all soon. Thank you again. <laughs>